welcome to an episode of Beyond Our Borders, conversations with Atlantic Canadians who are impacting the world. Each episode will bring you key insights, tools, tips, and tricks in life and in business from the best and the brightest from this corner of the world. What are you most grateful for? That is the question my guest Janice Landry poses in her latest book, Silver Linings. Stories of gratitude, resiliency, and growth through adversity. She asked this question to 15 inspiring Canadians across five provinces and two highly distinguished guests from the United States, one of whom is Dr. Robert Emmons, the world's leading expert in the study on gratitude. Their responses to this question will surprise and inspire you. Janice is an award-winning journalist and now celebrated author. She joins me today. Welcome, Janice. It's such an honor. I, I just uh, It's so strange to hear you read that. I'm going, is she talking about me? This is weird. because, <laughs> uh, And I mean it because for me, um, you know, I started writing when I was, was a kid, and I grew up in Purcell's Cove, which is a little community just outside the edge of Halifax, and I'm still that person. So for me, why I, I always was a storyteller. I, I grew up as a storyteller, and that's just evolved now into doing some advocacy work in Canada and the mental health field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really just me as a kid who's now an adult telling stories. And we love the, these stories. <laughs> well, thank you. Janice, I always start with the same question for everyone, and that is, what has been the biggest challenge in your life that you've had to overcome to be the accomplished person you are today? Well, I, I, I know immediately how I'm going to answer that, and that's the uh, loss of both of my parents. Mm-hmm. My father, his name is Basil, everybody called him Baz Landry, died in 2006. And then my mother, Teresa, uh, died in 2018. So I'm an only child. I I don't have siblings, uh, obviously. I I am married, and we do have a beautiful daughter, so I do have my own family, which I'm deeply grateful for. But Mm -hmm. losing my parents, I was very, very close to both mom and dad, has been a a huge barrier in some way and also a gift. And that's going to sound like a strange thing to say for people who've had loss, and that's something that I discuss in my new book, Silver Linings, people who have experienced loss, and eventually we all do, that eventually, if you leave room for it, you can come to find that there are what I call silver linings. It's a term we've used our, our whole lives. But you, you, mm-hmm. you tend to see that there is some light in those dark times. And uh, I have been able to see that there are many gifts that have emerged from these two very deep losses in my life. But I still have days where I have sideways grief, you know, where I will be going along fine, then all of a sudden something will trigger a memory of one of my parents, and I'm, I'm now having a bad day. So that's mm-hmm. all part of it, and that's very natural and normal. But mm-hmm. definitely the loss of mom, mom and dad's death is the biggest for me, for sure. I'm very, very sorry for your losses. Um, I will be coming to them uh, in subsequent questions. You know, before writing books, you had a distinguished career as a TV journalist, why leave that that platform? Because, you know, you had a voice. It was a powerful platform. That was, this is a really easy question to ask, and, and there is uh, nothing on earth uh, for me that comes before my family. And the reason I left was because I became a new mom. So my mm. our daughter was born. 
1999. At that point, I had 12 years in as a journalist with CTV, and I loved every minute of it. But the type of work that I covered personally at the time, I was a um, a person who did a lot of crime reporting. Um, you know, so you could potentially be at an armed standoff with a suspect and the police and other first responders. And, of course, you can't just say, well, uh, you know, my baby has to be changed and fed. I have to go home now. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. Uh, and I mean this in all seriousness. It's just you can't you can't control uh, the assignments you're going to be sent on or the type of work I was doing at the time when I uh, left television. So that was primarily the reason. It was because I wanted to have more control over my time and assignments as a journalist, as a new mother. And that's exactly why I left. My next question is about a mentor that you have. I, you know, I, I adore and respect my mentors. One of yours happened to be the late, great Bill Jessam. And I understand that at one point, you know, he looked at you, this is when you were thinking about writing books, and he said, you know, Janice, what are you afraid of? And that kind of stopped you in your tracks. And, and what were you afraid of? Uh, I really appreciate you asking me about Bill. And Bill, um, I miss Bill every single day. And he was, you know, kind of like a family member in a way to me, way more than a mentor. I mean, he could have been like an uncle or, or someone like that. He was kind of a, not a, fa- I mean, my own father and I were super close, but maybe a secondary father figure type guy. I mean, we were very, very close. And, you know, I just want to say to your to your listeners, Bill had a lot of uh, good friends, and I, I feel very fortunate to be in an inner circle of his closest friends. And he was, you know, one day I was over at his house, and we used to go out, uh, he and I and a group of people would go out for lunches or dinners frequently over many years. And eventually his health got to the point where he was unable to leave his house anymore. And so those close friends would instead bring him, you know, coffee and lunches, breakfast, that sort of thing. So on this occasion, I was at his house with uh, CBC's uh, consumer specialist, Yvonne Colbert, who's one of our closest friends. She's like a sister to me. Mm -hmm. And Yvonne and, and Bill and I were in his living room, and I was telling him about a concept I had for a book, which has now been published, called The 62nd Story. Mm-hmm. And that story is about my late father and his peers. And you're right, he got to, Bill Jessam got quite, um, well, he was very upfront with me and kind of in a gruff voice. He had this beautiful, gravelly voice with mm-hmm. a signature sound. And Bill, you know, turned to me and he said, you know, what are you afraid of and what are you waiting for? And those were um, rhetorical questions because everybody in in the room knew what I was afraid of, and I'll answer that in a second. And, you know, I want to point out that Yvonne, who's very, very bright, uh, didn't say anything. She just listened. Mm-hmm. And Bill waited for my answer. And, I, and, and, and we knew that the unspoken words were that I was afraid of failure because when you're a creative person, whether you're a writer or a musician, or a dancer, or an artist, whatever your field is that you're you, you're creating in, uh, putting yourself out there for the general public is absolutely terrifying. Right. And I'm glad I'm glad you asked me because this book that I've just put out, Silver Linings, is my fifth book. But in and with each piece, I you know learn new things. But I'm still really really scared. Every time when I hit, when they hit publish, you know, when I know it's gone mm-hmm. off to the publisher after many rounds of editing and you wait for the thing to come out and you hold it in your hand or you see it in a bookstore, that is that time period that elapses. I'm still scared 
out of my wits. And why is that important for your listeners? Because that's natural, right? It, it, one of the things about doing anything is facing a fear, whether that's moving into a new town, taking a new job, uh, going in or out of a relationship or whatever a major milestone is in your life. It's absolutely natural to have fear. Mm. Uh, but I used to teach for a long time at Mount St. Vincent University. And what I used to tell my students is that you have to sort of face that fear and embrace it and learn from it. And that's one of the key uh, learnings that I have taken away from my relationship and time with the late Bill Jessam that, you know, he allowed me to do that. I do credit him with being the single person who helped me face that fear and branch into um, nonfiction long-form writing. So mm-hmm. I, I just love that man to death. I miss him every day. You, you know, it's funny. I, I did my PR degree at the Mount, and when I was researching you, I I saw that you started there in 2001, and that was around the time I was there, and I was like, how did I miss her? I don't understand how I, I missed her. <laughs> I have, yeah, I taught on campus for 16 years. So this April uh, will be three years since I left the classroom. Yeah, oh. I was there at the Mount um, in the Department of Communication Studies for many, many years. And I have literally hundreds of students across the globe. And uh, it's funny because when I went to the University of King's College to study honors journalism, I had no clue whatsoever that I would go down a path where I would do some teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because as a child, I always wanted to be a teacher. It's funny. So I actually got to do some teaching. And it's the thing I'm most grateful for about that chapter of my life as a working professional are my students. Uh, to see them now, I have a lot of them on social media and they contact me for, you know, support and advice or reference letters or, or whatever. And to see them grow and flourish as, as, as young people and go off and have their own lives. It's just a gift that I never anticipated I would have in my life. And mm-hmm. I, I just absolutely love to see them to grow. It's just wonderful. It's pretty amazing that, you know, we, we adore our mentors so much and then somehow you eventually evolve into a mentor for others. It's just a beautiful thing, I think. I, I agree, and I, I would be completely humbled if anybody ever saw me as a mentor. You know, um, I, you know, it's hard to see yourself that way. You just get up and do your thing day in and day out and grind it out like any but everybody else, right? But uh, so the fact that anybody would ever consider me that way would be a huge, a huge thing for me. I don't know that they do per se. I've had a lot of students certainly come to me for advice and assistance, and, mm-hmm. and other people, you know, maybe writers or other people that don't have as much experience and I still consider myself a newbie in this area. I'm, I'm just really, um, you know, learning and growing and mm-hmm. I take all the advice I can get and feedback because, you know, I'm in it for the, the long haul. And that's one of the things I learned from Bill Jessen. you know, Bill wrote, uh, every single day, his work ethic was incredible. And he wrote, uh, right up into his late eighties till he could not physically write anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's when also one of the messages I took from him that, um, when you're a creative person, um, you know, he had retired out of, you know, uh, mainstream media and that sort of thing. But that's when he started to write his, his mystery books and maritime mystery stuff. And people, you know, loved him for that. And, right. So that came at a later stage of his career and life, and I think that's also an important message for those people who are listening, that uh, no matter your age, that you have value in society and you can add to it and help other people. And Bill did that for me and many other people uh, well into his late 80s. 
Well, you know I'm going to be pulling out that soundbite, Janice. <laughs> you please do anything that honors Bill. I'm happy to help. I I wholeheartedly agree with you that age does not matter. You can still pursue your dreams and contribute to the world. Absolutely. I want to go back to your first book. You mentioned the 60 second story, and I understand this was a salute to your dad, the late veteran Halifax firefighter Basil Landry, or as you mentioned, everyone called him Baz. What is the 60-second story, and, and what does that mean? So the title of the book, which is literally time, right, 60 seconds like it, we have in a minute, uh, the reason for the title of the book is there was a, an incident. My late father was a firefighter with the former Halifax Fire Department, which is now Halifax Regional Fire and Emergency. And back in 1978, there was a really, really bad house fire here in Halifax, not far um, off of Bears Road. So for people that know Halifax, near the Bears Road Shopping Center, not um, mm-hmm. not far from there. And my dad and his peers were called from the Bears Road Fire Station uh, to the sort of their attached row housing uh, in a specific area. And there was a family who were having dinner, and they heard this sort of crackling sound, and they had been frying hamburgers, but, um, you know, the cooking had subsided, and they were there eating, and they could hear this crackling noise, and one of them got up from the table and went out in the hallway, and when they did, they saw these great plumes of black smoke and flame coming down from the stairwell that led to the second floor of the home. Everyone was eating at the dinner table, except there was a, an eight-week-old infant upstairs in his crib Mm. and they could not get upstairs to uh, even though they tried the family members tried the father of the infant um tried to get up the stairs and they couldn't and called 911 and that's when my dad and his peers started to uh, come to the scene and when they got there the family had uh, been forced outside by the uh, rough rough conditions and they told dad that the, the baby was trapped upstairs and so around the back of the house there was a porch over the back doorway, and Dad scaled up onto the porch roof. Uh, he did not put his breathing apparatus on because he told me the one time we talked about this, if he had stopped to do that, the baby would have died. There simply was not time for him to put his, his breathing apparatus on. So we climbed up, jumped onto the home's gutter system, and shimmied across that, and then uh, swung himself up, broke the window with his helmet, and got into the, the child's room. I mean, this is this plays out in this book like a film, except that it's actually not a movie. It's a true story. And he got inside the room, and the room was pitch black, and he couldn't see his hand in front of his face, but he eventually found the baby's crib, and he got the baby to the window and did most and most resuscitation with the infant and saved the infant with his with the help of his peers who had strategically placed um, a ladder up against the window while Dad was inside because without that ladder, uh, Dad and the baby would have died. And all, um, all of the firefighters I tracked down in my research to interview that were present that day who were still alive told me uh, without a doubt that it was 60 seconds or less and my father and the baby would have died in the fire. Mm. So that's, um, that incident led to my father um, receiving Canada's Medal of Bravery at, at Rideau Hall in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if your listeners know this, but Halifax has the oldest fire service in Canada. And my dad is the first firefighter in the more than 250-year history of Halifax Fire to receive the Medal of Bravery. So in Canadian firefighting history, my father 
is a significant person. But the reason I wrote the book is he never talked about this in his lifetime. He was very humble. Mm-hmm. And after dad died, I Googled his name and nothing came up. And I'm a journalist and a storyteller. And I thought, you know what? Not on my watch. And I want my, I want people to know about my dad and his peers and what they did and, and why that this medal was given. And that's why that book came about. Mm-hmm. A hero. I have chills. A true hero. A true hero. I understand, and this is crazy, I understand that the person that set that fire in 1978 reached out to you, and then you subsequently met with him, who now has a family, who's married and has a family. What was that like? Well, I mean, this is one of those moments in your career that you cannot possibly prepare for. So just before I get to that answer, just to let you know, at the end of the 60-second story, I tracked down and reunited with the very person that my father saved, who is now uh, Mm -hmm. a married man with his own family. His name is Nick. And so there's, at the ending of that book, is is me reuniting with that, with the person who who was eight weeks old at the time of the fire. Mm -hmm. And when it it was in his 30s, when I met him, it was just absolutely beautiful. And in the promotion of the 60-second story, to answer your question, uh, I had done a bunch of media, as I usually do after a book comes out, and I had gone back to uh, my former workplace at CTV Atlantic and done an interview um, on um, CTV News at 5 with Bruce Frisco. And after I came home for dinner, after my media interview, I checked my Facebook messages. Mm-hmm. I could see I had a message. And this person had reached out to me that I did not know and did not go looking for. Uh, via Facebook that had seen my interview with Bruce and wanted to let me know that they were the person who was responsible for the fire that had almost caused my father and the baby their lives. Mm-hmm. And of course, I almost, I almost fell off my chair. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to underline that the person, uh, was a child right. who was playing with matches and in no way intended to cause anybody any harm so I spent months preparing for this interview because when you go to talk to people about traumatic situations as as journalists sometimes have to do and I do regularly for my books it's a I take it very very seriously and if you're going to take somebody back you don't want to re-traumatize them which can happen right so I had to ask myself and this gentleman's name is Jamie why would I go talk to him? And, you know, after many, many months of preparation, I realized that uh, talking to me would be part of Jamie's healing and that his story could help many other people who had made a bad decision. So this, right. this book that you're talking about is called The Price We Pay. And the book is, the focus of the book is that all of us as human beings have decisions that we make that are good and bad and we have to live with them. And so back when Jamie was a child, he made a bad decision. And um, it turned out okay in the end. The story had a happy ending. But here he he is as an adult to come forward. I mean, the guts this would take to come and sit with a a veteran journalist who's the daughter of the person who almost died in the fire. You don't know what I'm going to ask you. Right. And our, our interview went on for over an hour. I, I think it, I mean, it even it might have been closer to two hours now. I'd have to go back and look at for the exact fact on that. But it was a very lengthy interview. And he did that interview to help people who are grappling with decisions that they've made in their lives. And I can tell you 
that Jamie is one of the bravest people I have interviewed in my 30-year career. And I was so impressed with mm-hmm. what he had wanted to do through through this book that I partially dedicated the price we pay to him. And and I and I if he is listening to this or any of his family or friends, I want them to know how proud I am and how proud my late father would be that he had the guts to come forward and do mm-hmm. this to try to help other people. I cannot state that enough. You know, speaking of trauma. You know, in your reporting career, you, you you tackled very tough subjects, I have to say, you know, like crime, the courts, homelessness, and the sex trade, not just in, in, in Nova Scotia, but in Canada. And subsequently, you wrote a book called The Legacy Letters, How Trauma Affects Our Lives. So Janice, how does trauma affect us? Well, I think that, you know, trauma can become part of people, right? It's it's something that pe- some people have to, not all people now, we have to underline that it's, you know, people are individual and reactions to situations are very, very individual. There's no blanket statement that you can make about trauma or uh, growth through adversity or, or any of this. So, um, you know, personally for me, and I'll use myself as an example because I don't mind doing so, I... I was a young girl coming out of the University of King's College uh, Honors Journalism Program and started to work at, was was then ATV, which is now CTV Atlantic, and Mm -hmm. I covered a lot of incredibly heartbreaking stories about young women uh, that were either abducted uh, or murdered or assaulted or raped Mm -hmm. on and on with a very little uh, life experience. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about being 22, something like that, years old, and a lot of the crimes against these young women back in that time um, were considered by some police officers to possibly have been a potential serial killer. And that's discussed in that book, The Legacy Letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a former Halifax police, a high-ranking police officer um, who had never given any other interviews before my book that comes out and talks about that. That theory had certainly circulated in the media here um, many times. I'm not the the only journalist who talked about the potential serial killer or killers operating in Halifax. We're talking about the late 80s, 80s and 90s here. And to, to, to cover these stories as a young woman yourself, and you're talking about uh, young people who could potentially be in, be in your own peer group, that definitely has had a lasting impact on me. And no, I don't live with a post-traumatic stress injury um, or anything like that, but I do believe that I had cumulative stress about this. I mean, you go out and over and over again talk about these things, it's going to have an impact you, on you. I'm, I'm fine today, mm-hmm. but I can remember sitting in the newsroom and just dreading being sent to another one of these things, right? Because it's just so taxing. And so right. why is this important to the public? Well, in the legacy letters, I talk about the effect of trauma across many, many backgrounds and professions. So we often think about, um, like my father, firefighters, or police officers or paramedics and, and these people who are, I, I think, are some of the most important people in our society. Mm-hmm. But trauma also affects others, uh, you know, social workers, photojournalists, uh, emergency room staff. We could go on and on with the types of people that maybe work in the legal system, uh, other clinicians. 
that are uh, listening um, or witnessing trauma day in and day out over many, many years of their career. And so that's why I did that book was because we as a society have to try to preemptively train people um, at the at the university level or community college level or wherever they're training so that they know um, the, the things to look out for when they go out there and work around trauma over a lifetime. We need more preemptive training, and that's one of the things I do advocate for in Canada. So, you know, your latest book called Silver Linings talks about gratitude so coming out of trauma how we can how how can we see you know the bad experiences in our life what's the positivity what inspired this book this book um came from a trauma actually and my late mother um Teresa was 83 years old at the time that this incident happened and what what happened was we had the standing lunch date where every week her and I would take each other to lunch you know we'd take turns and it was wonderful and I would give anything to be able to go for lunch with her another time mm-hmm. and in January of 2017 I dropped her off from one of our lunch dates and it was a beautiful sunny day and there was no snow or ice or anything else and I always waited for my mom to go up her front steps to get in safely inside her apartment building. There was probably like five or eight steps. And on this day, she was outside talking to a neighbor by the name of Peter. And I knew Peter, and he's a lovely man. And so he and mom were, you know, friends from the apartment building. And so I left. I lived about two or three minutes away, and she was there chatting along with Peter, and everything was fine. And about two minutes after I got home, my cell phone rang. And it was a paramedic. And the first thing I heard was this. I'm a paramedic. I'm with your mother. And I'm going to tell you, my stomach literally went into a ball. I could feel the muscles in my stomach contract because I'm thinking to myself, well, what do you mean? I just left her two minutes ago. How can my mother be with the paramedic? What happened? Right. So, you know, you're, you're in a panic. And what happened was, after Peter went to turn to get into his car, he didn't, wasn't looking at mom, and she started up the steps and somehow fell backwards. And my 83-year-old mother fell down the steps and hit her head on the concrete sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I imagine, you always imagine the worst. I mean, if anybody listening has ever gotten one of those phone calls, you know, I put that in air quotes. You get one of those phone calls and they're bad, right? And nobody wants them. So I I, I quick got in my car and drove back over to mom's and the paramedics were still parked outside. And I had a chat with them because I was concerned about concussion, a concussion and and the symptoms. So we went over the the symptoms of concussion a few times. Mm -hmm. And then when I went in to speak with mom, you know, I'm not going into every detail, but there's a lot of them in the book. But basically when I got inside, my mom was very shaken up, but she was okay. Mm -hmm. She had a very nasty, nasty gash on her head that was still oozing blood. And I worried that I'd have to take her to the hospital. So I stayed with her for a long time to make sure she was, you know, making sense. She didn't have concussion symptoms. And she was okay. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine how traumatic this was for her and for me. And I kept an eye on her every single day. Of course, we went to the doctor and all the things you do and many times. Right. But a a couple days after that fall, I went over to mom's house to check on her and don't ask me, don't ask me exactly why I thought this, but one of the things I do to combat stress is I love to take bubble baths. And I urge your listeners to find things that they need to do to, for self care yeah. for me, 
uh, one of them is I love to take nice long baths. So I was in the bathtub and this idea popped into my head about gratitude because and resiliency. So the book is about gratitude, but it's also about resiliency. And I was thinking while I was in the tub, you know, I never really gave my mom the credit she deserved for being in her 80s. And mm-hmm. like she weighed 90 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> but my gosh, that woman was was more resilient than I ever gave her credit for. And I was so grateful for this. So when I went over to my mom's house a few days after this nasty fall, I said to mom, I said, you know, would you participate in a gratitude project with me? And, you know, mom, I think she was still, you know, getting over this fall and she was hesitant. So I said, look, here's what we'll do. You write down on a little piece of paper, what are you grateful for? So I write this, I wrote the question down just in cursive handwriting. What are you, what are you grateful for? And I gave it to her. And in, in what she wrote back was, and this is a quote from Teresa, I am grateful for being here today after what happened to me this week. Mm-hmm. And so my mother was simply grateful for life itself. And that seems like a very simple answer, but it's not. And when you read some of the stories in the book of different people I've interviewed, there's numbers of people who are very grateful for life itself because of different things that have happened to them, whether it be a major illness um, or other loss or something traumatic that's happened. So that is what, that, that's how I got the ball rolling. And so I, I sort of narrowed the focus down in, in journalism school. We're, we're trained a lot about focus and, and purpose and objective. And I wanted a more narrow focus than just, just gratitude in general. So I asked everybody in the book, what are you the most grateful for? Mm-hmm. And that seems like an easy question. So someone asks you it and you actually have to write it down and you know it's going to be published mm-hmm. uh, in, in black and white or online or however else you want to read the, the book. And uh, it took people, you know, they all agreed, everybody in the book, the 17 interviewees all agreed to to answer the question, but many people took a long, long time to to truthfully answer what they're the most grateful for. And I know, you know, the 17 people that you're referring to, you know, experienced some of them a tremendous, you know, tragedy, loss, trauma. So to be able to find gratitude coming from those experience, experiences, I think is very profound. You know, I have to tell you, when I'm having a bad day, I will take two minutes, literally just two minutes, and I will sit down and I will write a list of what I'm grateful for in my journal. And it just, it just turns everything around. It really kind of shifts your, your perspective. What do you mean, like, like have you cultivated a... a, a a gratitude practice, you know, are we sitting in lotus position and chanting OM? <laughs> like, what does gratitude mean? Not, not, no, that's not me. Um, and if anybody who knows me, I, I'm always really frank in all the interviews I do, who, who I am while I do an interview or go out and do a talk or hang around and have pizza with my family, friends is the same person. I absolutely don't do that. Part of um, what I would call a gratitude practice for me, though, if you want to call it that, right. is being in, in, in nature. I grew up as a kid in sort of what we would call the country in Purcell's Cove, and so I spent a significant amount of time in nature. 
So I grew up literally next door to the ocean um, where our property was surrounded by three sides by the water. And so I spent all my time outside. I grew up as a kid where we only came in to eat you know, food. Or, you know, I, I was one of those kids where your mother would call you in to eat, and that's when you came in. <laughs> otherwise, you were outside. And that's to me, that's part of my gratitude practice. So when I'm having a bad day, I try to get outside. And what's tough for me is I'm not a winter person. I like I'm a beach bum. I like the warm temperatures. Oh, me too. Um, I'm, ha- I, I'm happiest now. Today is absolutely beautiful out, and lately we've had a great run of weather, so that makes me happier. But in terms of my like gratitude and trying to stay grounded in gratitude, is I, I, it really does help me to be outside in nature. And then also in the woods, I spend a lot of time uh, hiking or being in the woods as a kid, and I still love to do that now. So gratitude practices doesn't mean uh, for everyone listening that you have to necessarily go and write in a journal like you, although many people I know do, mm-hmm. and find it very empowering to write it down. The physicality of writing it down is really wonderful. Um, but for me, it's, oh, it's nature and outside. And so if I'm having a tough time and because I did grow up with my parents by the water, I always feel very connected to them if I'm near. And I'm talking about the ocean here. Mm-hmm. I like lakes and rivers and streams and everything else too. But for me, uh, that profound connection comes with being by the ocean. Right. And um, I do often find myself driving near it or going to walk by it or going for a walk in the woods. Uh, if I need to kind of connect back and just say, hey, you know, take it, take a deep breath. It's all going to be okay. And I urge people listening to do that. I'm glad to hear that you do what you do and it works for you. I don't, I don't write in a gratitude journal, uh, but I can tell you writing this gratitude book has been extremely healing for me because how was I going to know that, okay, my mom dies and then 10 weeks later, one of my close friends dies. So it's like the universe said to me, oh, yeah, okay, Jana, you want to write a book about gratitude, do you? Well, listen, we'll throw you a couple curveballs here and see just how grateful you really are. And that's exactly what happened to me. Actually, that was my next question. I, You know, Janice, I cannot imagine the pain. You know, you lose your beloved mom and then 10 weeks later, your dear friend, Audrey. How do you find the strength to keep writing? Yeah, you're not the first person who's asked me that. And I can tell you with all honesty, there were many times, you know, so after they both died, I had all the 17 interviews done, um, but I was in the process of, of writing. So I had to finish writing and then edit. And of course, in, when you're writing, you know, something that's hundreds of pages long, the editing process of it is just massive. It's so much work to do the editing. So part of it for me was um, just really wanting, this is my, you know, we're talking about and as much as I loved Audrey and I love her so much, I'm talking about my mother. This is the person who brought me into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I've already done my honoring of my father. I will always continue to honor my late father and all first responders. It's a huge thing for me. I'm very passionate about it. But with this specific book, silver linings you're talking about me being able to honor the very person who brought me into the world so i owe it to teresa to do that no matter how hard it is for me it's not about me it's about her and the other wonderful people in the book so this was a real passion project for me it's a gift in itself that during a time of deep 
morning, I was able to go and listen to all these incredible stories of these brave and heroic and beautiful people over and over again in writing and editing while I was in grief for my mom and friend. So I don't think that that's coincidental. Mm. I really, really don't. I don't actually believe in coincidences. I think things happen for a reason. And I couldn't have known how this was going to happen when I set out to do the project. Remember, my mom fell. That's why I started the project. And the book opens with her fall. And the book ends with her death. And I can tell you that the very first person that this book has helped is me. That was going to be another question. <laughs> that's what that's what I get when you interview a journalist, a career journalist. <laughs> no, this okay. is awesome. You can ask me. You- you can ask me anything you want. <laughs> no, I I actually wanted to ask you about one of the key, I know they're all key people in Silver Linings, but one of the key people is, um, and this took you months to land the interview with the world's leading expert on gratitude research, and that's Dr. Robert Emmons at the University of California. What was the most profound thing that you learned from him? Well, you know what? I, uh, I'm glad you asked me about Dr. Emmons. And uh, I actually learned about Dr. Emmons through a, uh, another person who's in the book, uh, who lives in Halifax, who's the CEO and does a lot of gratitude work. Uh, he's just amazing. His name's Steve Foran. And Steve's like, you know, Janice, you should really try to get Dr. Emmons. So I, I'm like, okay, I'll go for it. And when I trained at King's, you know, one of my most influential professors there, who I considered a a dear mentor at that earlier stage of my career, is the late Ian Wiseman. And Ian uh, worked with the CBC. He was from Newfoundland. He was also an amazing poet and broadcaster. And Ian was fabulous with me and many, many other students. And he, one of the things that Ian taught me was the art of perseverance as a journalist. Right. And so this is pre-internet days, right? So that's hard for some of your listeners, you know, the younger people going, what do you mean pre-internet? But, you know, we literally in the newsroom have to sit at your desk and call and redial and call and call and call again until you got someone, you got what you needed to get done. And that is absolutely because of Ian that I do that and I still do it to this day. And so it took me five months to land that interview with Dr. Emmons, who Yes, as you're correct, works out of the University of California, Davis. And I got, I, you know, I, I, there's no way I thought he would ever do the interview with me. Because first of all, if you're the global expert in gratitude, why give a, an interview to a journalist from, he might, I'm thinking he's probably not even going to know where Nova Scotia <laughs> is, right? First of all, let alone who I am. But he was absolutely very gracious and um made time for me and I, I I was thrilled as you can imagine when you are a journalist and you get an exclusive interview and a really big land a really big interview it's a big deal so I knew having him in the book would, would be like a feather in my cap journalistically because there is nobody else that's considered to be more expert in this field than him he is way up there and one of the things that I asked him with deep respect uh, at the beginning of the interview is that, hey, you know, here you are being, now I'm paraphrasing clearly, I'd never speak to him this way, but, you know, you're the leading expert in in gratitude, and when was the last time you found yourself ungrateful? And his answer to me did blow me away because he said he actually has to remind himself daily to be grateful because he forgets every single day. (laughs) And And I think that's really important because it's part of the human experience 
that we can forget to be grateful about things or even tend to like assume the negative or, you know, run with things we shouldn't, the whole, the what ifs and everything else. Uh, But I thought it was really, really amazing that he would admit that he has to do this every single day, just like the rest of us, despite the fact he's the world leading authority in it. Which I think demonstrates how universal this is, you know. It is. It is. And I think one of, a couple of the things he talks about, just some highlights about his research, and there's tons of stuff in the book, but um, here's the quote. I just, I've just found the quote. This is me quoting Dr. Robert Emmons. Quote, each and every day I have to remind myself to practice gratitude because each and every day I forget to practice gratitude. Mm-hmm. And then later he goes on. So when something tough happens, he, there's some learnings that he, he gives to the readers that I think I hope that when people read them, they jot them down and reflect on them. And he, he says, and again, I'm quoting him directly now. I ask myself, what is the gift in this situation what is the opportunity here right. how has this present moment been given to me so when something what he means by that is when something bad happens to us and inevitably every single person listening to this either has had something tough happen to them or will have something tough happen to them in their lifetime it's just the way it goes that's life and so so for me, you, I can say, and, and I do use myself as an example at the end of the book about the loss of my mother, because the last scene in the book is the day my mom dies. And what working in this, working and researching in the field of gratitude and developing what you call your gratitude practice has done for me is that in the moment where my own mother died, I had to call 911. Mm. and a number of first responders, I talk all about this in the book, come to my mother's house where I am there with my, I called my husband, so I had multiple phones going, and, and my husband came, and all the par- the paramedics came, the police came, the fire department came, the you know medical examiner's office came, they all came to, to assist me. So here I am, here I am with my now deceased mother, because we tried to save her and we couldn't, it was her time, and it was obviously incredibly upsetting and devastating. But here I am surrounded by more than a dozen first responders who are the absolute very people I advocate for. And it was not lost on me in that moment that they were there for me and my family, too. And I, I'm a kid of a first responder. So the, the gift of these people, like as we're doing this podcast, they're out there helping other families, just mm-hmm. like yours and mine right now. Mm-hmm. And that, that was not lost on me in that moment of incredible loss. Right. So there are gifts. And for me in that moment, and I mean, I could go on and talk about the, there's many other gifts that stem from it, but to have these people rush in and help me, uh, it was just, it's just so profound that it's really difficult for me to put into words how I felt at that moment, knowing they were there to do whatever they could do to help us. What are you most grateful for today? Today, I'm really grateful that my daughter's here with me and I'm talking to you and it's sunny <laughs> and my family, I could go on and on and on and on. But I think what I'm most, what I'm most grateful for is the opportunity today, right now, at this moment, to be able to talk about my late mentor and friend and parents. So every chance I get to honor the people who helped me, I do it because 
you know, it does take a village and nobody achieves anything without the support of many, many people. So every single opportunity I have to honor them, especially my mom and dad, I take it. And so I thank you for that because you've given me another opportunity to do that. And it really, really means a lot to me. And I'm very grateful for that right now in this moment. Oh, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm today, I am so grateful for this interview with you. I, I don't really, it's hard to, it's hard to thank you because I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure you have some understanding that by doing this podcast, you're spreading very positive stories. And I told you that I listened to the one before this one on Karen Wenzel, who's a, a very good friend of mine. And, mm-hmm. and listening to Karen's interview with you is the reason why I said yes to you, because I trust Karen. She's so eloquent and beautiful. You handled mm-hmm. yourself beautifully with her. And so I just want to tell you that the work that you're doing is very important and not to underestimate the ripple effect of the positive messages that you're sending with your podcast. Oh, you're going to make me cry now. Thank you very much. <laughs> that that means uh, that means a lot to me. Well, you're welcome. Um, I was just curious, what is your advice for budding writers? I, you know what? I just think, remember what Bill Jessam said to me, right? It's, oh, and, and, and remember what I'm saying. So he said, you know, what are you afraid of and what are you waiting for? And I'm also answering by saying it's okay to have fear, but don't let the fear stop you. And what I used to say, and I, I do still say to our daughter and many of my, my former students at Mount St. Vincent University is I truly believe with my whole heart that the only person that can stop you is you, mm-hmm. right? You are, you, if you, you believe in yourself and you have the support of even one person, and even if you have it, if you, it's been a tough road for you and you can be that person for someone else, right? You can right. be that Bill Jessam. You can be that mentor. So yes, maybe it was tough for you and you did not have that, but you are a smart person listener, whoever you are, mm-hmm. and you have the opportunity to support someone and you'll never know just like Bill did for me, just like Ian Wiseman did for me and my parents and my own family, my husband and daughter, Rob and Laura. The fact that you have people who have your back, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, it allows you to try to achieve something, to, to try to think that you might be able to do it. So don't let you stop you. Where can our listeners find your books? My books are, in, if, if, depending on where people are, are listening from, uh, you can get it on Amazon.ca, anywhere. Uh, my own website, JaniceLandry.ca, my, my name. You can, all my books are there. And most major retailers have them. So, you know, Coles, Indigo Spirit, Chapters, smaller bookstores. Most, my books are pretty much in most bookstores. But right. if you're further afield than, say, Atlanta, Canada, listening from elsewhere, you can certainly order them online and it'll be at your, it'll be at your doorstep this week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my final question is is the same for everyone. And I always ask people, you know, what book do you recommend? Or, you know, what quote do you, are you inspired by or live by? Or, you know, you could recommend your books, of course. (laughs) Well, no, I don't don't think I would recommend my books. But I'll tell you what book for writers, um, whether you like this writer, uh, or not. So I used to read a lot of uh, horror and suspense and mysteries when I was a kid. I love mysteries. 
the mysteries are, and I, I'd like to write one someday. So, uh, but in that genre, Stephen King is someone that you may or may not like. But even if you don't like him, he has a book called On Writing. And it's a book mm-hmm. about the art of writing. And a lot of writers I know have read it many times. And I think if you're at all interested in the creative process, you should look that book up. It's a really cool book, and it's not what you're expecting. And if you remember, at one point in his life, um, he lives in Maine, which a lot of people will know. He was walking down the road, this is years ago, and he got hit by a car. And in this book, so part of the book is about him being hit by the car and his recovery from that and how difficult it was to go on with his process and his creativity. And the other part of the book are tips about writing. And so it's a very, from him, it's not what you would expect. Even if you've read none of his books, I still think as a writer or creative person, I would suggest that one. There's so many I could suggest, but it's just something that maybe people aren't expecting Mm -hmm. someone to say. And so that's the Mm -hmm. one I'm going to put out there. Especially from him. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just interesting. I really like, too, in the book, his really, his, the candor about um, coming back from that accident. Because he was, I mean, he, he really should have not walked away from that. Right. I mean, he should have, he was very, very lucky not to have been killed. It was a really, really bad accident. So I think it's also helpful on many levels. It's not just the tips that he has for writers, but just that trauma that he went through with his family and uh, some of the advice he has there, too, is is also very, very um, profound. Janice, I like I mentioned, I'm very grateful for this conversation today and that you took the time out of your day to speak with me. Thank you so much. And thank you for your kind words. I really, truly appreciate it. Like you mentioned, like when you're a creative person and you want and you're passionate about something and you create it and you put it out there, you know, oftentimes I'm like, is anyone listening? So uh, your words meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. Well, you know what? I, I mean, I know that you'll you'll pay it forward, too, when you do that with your podcast. Isn't that what we're all – we should all lift mm-hmm. each other up as creative people, no matter what format you're working in. Uh, I believe there's room for everybody in the pond. The pond's big enough for all kinds of people to be in there splashing around. So the very more, true. the merrier. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you very much. You are so inspiring, and I, I wish you continued blessings and success. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate you tuning in. This podcast is produced by Tanya Shadrawi and Michael Boyd through the facilities of Podcast Atlantic. We'd love for you to be part of our conversations. If you'd like to drop us a line, please go to tanyamedia.com. Or if you know of someone who should be on our show that's from our very cool part of the world here in Atlantic Canada, we'd love to hear your ideas. You can subscribe to Beyond Our Borders on iTunes and most Android podcast platforms. Until the next conversation.